Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and here with me is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Play ball! That was good. I like that. You should probably be in the majors, or at least single A. Wow. Well, that's a quite a As job. a fan. As a fan, not as oh, anything else. Just okay. as a fan. That's great. <laughs> fair. Fair enough. Well, this week for our May donor pick, which is a few days late, we apologize, we asked our patrons to vote on a baseball movie that they would love for us to talk about. Out of the five great choices that were there, The Sandlot came out on top, and we figured, who better to have on the show to talk about this one than feeling film contributor and worldwide spelling champ runner-up Jeremy. Hey, man, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Have you back, sir. Before we get into the details of the film, Aaron, do we have any details of our own that we need to go over? We sure do. So a few days ago, we dropped our Patreon bonus question and answer episode for the month of May, and all who submitted questions in our Facebook group were put into a drawing for a free Letterboxd Pro account upgrade or extension, and the winner was Meredith Weber. So congrats to Meredith. We are very excited. Meredith has been uh, an active member of our Facebook group and listener as far back as I can remember, honestly, one of our longest patron supporters as well. So it was really cool to see her name come up. So Meredith has a new pro-level Letterboxd account. Hopefully she'll be using the heck out of that. We love Letterboxd here, and we definitely promote the heck out of it. Um, We'll be doing more contests in the future, so those will almost exclusively be run through the Facebook group. If you're interested in that, please go find your way to the group. You can join. It's open Come be a part of that. Speaking of Patreon, our supporters vote every month for one special episode like this one. And for June, we decided we will be covering a summer blockbuster of the past. The choices, which are all phenomenal, I might add, are The Fugitive, The Rock, the movie, not the actor, Speed, Mad Max Fury Road, and Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Voting takes place monthly between the 1st and the 10th, so you have until then to join as a Patreon supporter and help choose June's episode. We have multiple reward levels, and they've recently been revamped as well. So check out patreon.com slash feelinfilm to see how you can be a voter, access bonus content for as little as a dollar a month, and more while helping us keep the show going strong. I will also say if you have strong feelings about one of those five movies— we could use your vote because they all have support already in the voting. (laughs) This is going to be one of those weeks, or one of those months, rather, that goes down to the wire, and there's just no telling what might come out on top. Lastly, with regards to Patreon, we want to give a shout-out to Drew from the Cellcast for becoming our newest patron. We appreciate you so much. Thank you, Drew. Uh, We love you, and we hope you're enjoying the content that you get. And that's all I got, Patrick. Well, that being said, let's get right into it. This is the official spoiler portion of our podcast so if you haven't seen the sandlot what's wrong with you um if you haven't seen it again what's wrong with you if you haven't seen it multiple times what's wrong with you that's all i'm going to say with that so at this point we're going to be spoiling this so just do what you got to do come back and join the conversation when you feel like you are ready to enjoy what will hopefully be a great conversation about this as we like to do we'll kick it off with our one word takeaways and jeremy why don't you get us going all right, yeah, my word and word takeaway for this one is mythic, M-Y-T-H-I-C, and I've just been thinking about this a lot this week after re-watching the movie, is I love a movie like The Sandlot where the narrator is sort of spinning a yarn, I guess, as uh, like somebody in their 60s might say, and just telling a story, not necessarily of something that completely true but it's just something that they remember this week i also watched stand by me because i just kind of got in the mood for that sort of a movie and i think that it connects with me so much because i have kids who are at an age where i'm telling them a lot of well when i was your age stories and i 
this happened to me when I was a kid and that sort of thing. And, and so while we're watching the movie, I was watching with my 12 year old son and my 10 year old daughter. And they asked me during the movie, they said, Hey dad, why don't they show all of the beasts um, until the very end of the movie? Or why does the beast look so big until the very end of the movie? And I just loved how it's because he's not telling a story that's completely true, but he's telling a story that's just full of truth. And he's telling the story the way that he remembers it. And I think that's something that probably gets lost in our modern day and age where every memory is captured on your phone or on social media or that. And so I love that aspect of the movie. And that's why why my one word takeaway is mythic. Fantastic, Jeremy. Aaron, what about you? Well, my one word takeaway is simple. And I mean that in the most positive of ways. It is a simple film with a simple plot that really just reminds me of a simpler time. Um, I feel like movies of this nature are a dying breed. Jeremy, you said it perfectly, actually. The drama here is incredibly minimal. There's a new kid in a neighborhood. He meets baseball fanatic locals and spends the summer learning about the sport and making friends. It's coming of age in a sense, but we don't really get any big sweeping character changes in Smalls. And even the relationship between he and his stepdad, to me, is handled without major dramatic conflict that I think would occur if this was made in 2019. It reminds me of my early childhood summers in so many ways, right down to the uh, simplicity of the actual sandlot, which is just this mixed grass and dirt old field out in a park that you rode your bike down to and you went out and threw the ball around. Very reminiscent of a place I would go growing up. It is wonderfully refreshing to watch and completely endearing as could be. I would have to completely agree with that, Aaron. And, and my word is similar to yours in that I chose innocent as mine. I think that there's a lot to be said uh, in tying into what you were saying, Jeremy, with regards to telling the stories, but not trying to be historically accurate, telling the story for the sake of the impact that it has on its audience. And even from the very beginning, we're enticed by the biggest pickle that he seemed to that smalls gets himself into that this this group of people and and benny in particular gets him out of and so when you think about everything about this movie it seems like from the perspective of a child from that innocent pre-pubescent age everything feels innocent none of it feels tainted it doesn't feel overly complicated it feels like it's stories that resonate with kids because that's their world. Their world is the sandlot. Their world is the pool. Their world is each other and their world is the beast. And so all these things, all these legends that kind of get hinted at throughout the film are done in such an innocent way. And I think that adds not only to the entertainment, but the sincerity of it, because it doesn't feel like we're being sold something as an audience. We're just really listening at the feet of this narrator who's now an adult. And for me, it takes me back to being a kid and kind of believing in some of that, that fantasy stuff that made my summers and made my childhood that kind of alive. It's not, it wasn't me having to deal with, well, do I have enough lunch money to get the pizza and the fries as opposed to just the pizza? I mean, the real problems that these kids had were real, were, were kid problems. They're problems that my son kind of echoes with me the things that are such a big deal to him and the way it's handled is it's funny it's dramatic it's entertaining all at once and i feel like it makes a really complete story as simple as you said as it can be aaron so we're we're looking at a movie like this 15 years plus that it came out 1993 it made its debut and you know when we give our donors an opportunity to pick a movie, it always makes me wonder why, you know, why was this movie chosen over that? Especially if a movie comes out in like a landslide. And I think this one had a little bit of a close running with some other ones, but it still had a lot of legs to it. And I wanted to begin the conversation by asking you guys, what do you see as the appeal to a movie like this that is over 15 years old? I just think it's a timeless movie in that when you're a kid, you can love it because of the funny stuff at the pool. You can love it because of 
you think about how you play baseball with your friends. You can love it because of the everybody throwing up at the carnival. There's funny, fun action adventure. But as you get older, like Aaron said, you know, this is reminding me of playing baseball in the backyard with my friend when I'm eight, nine, ten every single day during the summer and only getting to play anything that looked like a game when we could talk my sisters into joining. You know, this is this is me thinking about that as I'm doing. And then as a dad, like I mentioned before, just thinking about the stories I tell and how I tell them and trying to give my kids an accurate picture of what my life was like and just seeing the way that they're able to show that nostalgia through um, Smalls' words uh, and telling the story to me is something that I could watch this movie every week. Really? Interesting. Is this Would this be up there in your top 10 of your top 100? It is in my top 10 of my top 100, yes, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. Aaron, this isn't quite an annual rewatch for you. In fact, I think you mentioned that it's been a little bit since you have seen this. And I was wondering how it appealed to you uh, revisiting it recently. Well, by a little bit since I've seen it, you probably is like since 1993. Um, I, sure. yeah. <laughs> I watched it, I'm sure, because I'm actually I'm guessing that I've seen this movie, to be honest with you. I assume because I grew up in a baseball home watching movies like this all the time that I must have seen it when I was a young teenager, but I couldn't recall anything about it when we sat down to talk about it and when, or when it got chosen. Um, I had no connection to it in the way that I might to some other films from that nineties. And I didn't even know Patrick that the reference of you're killing me smalls came from this movie until someone, and I think it was my son actually. <laughs> <laughs> who told me that he knew that came from this movie. I think he must have seen it at his house somewhere. And I was like, oh boy, this is embarrassing. So this was a essentially a first time I watched for me. And I was pretty blown away by it. I thought it was just so sweet. And innocent is a great, great word for this. It goes back to that Field of Dreams style of movie where things are just not over-dramatized. I think everything these days is made to be such a big deal and life-changing, right? This wasn't necessarily life-changing. And, and I said that in my one more takeaway. Smalls doesn't, we don't know if Smalls goes on to be a, you know, scientist or engineer or what, none of that matters in this movie. What matters is it's capturing a moment in time and a feeling that so many of us, whether it was young boys in the setting of this movie or even with us in the 80s, so... I thought that it was easy to relate to, and because of that, it was just a quick connection I made to it, and I could see myself rewatching this all the time. I I'm on a bit of like a baseball thing right now. We've got the baseball playoffs going on in college baseball. All three of our teams were in the playoffs, so it's been like a big week for us. I mean, I've got a game going off to the side right now, full disclosure, because both Patrick and I's teams are vying for... A spot in the next round. So we're very into baseball. I've been playing baseball on my PlayStation all weekend. And I, I try to not get hyped for baseball every year. I'm a Mariners fan. I experienced so much letdown during the long season and it typically wears me out. But what this movie did is reinvigorate and remind me of that love for the sport that was instilled in me as a kid by my dad playing catch with me and by my friends that I went out to my version of the Sandlot with where I can't ignore the feelings that it brings up and that passion for the sport, no matter what, even if I don't love it and follow it every day of the summer, I still have that. And this movie just, I feel like brings all of that to the surface and makes you feel so good about yourself for some reason. Yeah. There's an interesting thing about the fact that this is not called Smalls. It's not called Benny. It's called the Sandlot. And really the, the Sandlot itself is a supporting character in this movie. It's one of those things where it's where Smalls met these guys for the first time. It's where we get a lot of the decisions to be made with regards to how they're going to spend their days. Let's go to the pool or let's stay here. It's how they were able to conquer the beast, the, the tree house. I mean, how, how gutsy can you be? The tree house is over. But it like splits the sandlot and the the beast where he lives. And so that's kind of gutsy. But the sandlot itself becomes a place and 
almost the tenth player on this team that brings them all together. I love the fact that anytime they go somewhere as a group, or anytime they go somewhere, it's as a group. It's rarely that they're not by themselves. At at times they're paired up for the sake of introducing, you know, a certain Wendy Peppercorn or something like that. But most of the time it's leading them back to this place. And this place is where they all feel like they have equal footing, which I think is what makes Small's character pretty interesting because he didn't have that equal footing. You know, he he kind of snuck in and then was eventually ingratiated and kind of had to earn that spot in different ways. But I also love the fact that the Sandlot really doesn't tell the story of just one of these guys. There are pockets of stories throughout this summer, which is a big reality of what it's like growing up as a kid. Because if you have an ensemble of people, if you have a gang, if you have a crew or whatever you want to call them, it's it's not your summer. It's the summer of you guys. We talked on our bonus content about the Tat Brotherhood and how you and I met and that camaraderie that we had. I remember that we had summers where there was stuff going on with Ben. There was stuff going on with me. There was stuff going on with you and Garen and Matt. And we all just kind of experienced that together but it was you, it was always about one person here, another person there. And there's something really cool about that because to me, that's what makes a cast in a movie and a group of people in general so, uh, so appealing. In fact, in this ensemble cast, none of the actors really became stars. And I don't think that there are any folks in particular that audiences are familiar with. So what is it about this chemistry? and the different personalities of the Sandlot that make it special to you guys. I think you can just tell that these kids really enjoy each other and they seem like they are best friends. And I think that goes back to, I was reading this week that they all arrived early and sort of had like a little baseball boot camp to make sure everybody knew how to play. And we're, all of them were just fast friends, even to the point that uh, several of them got busted sneaking out in 1992 and sneaking into the movie Basic Instinct together, uh, which <laughs> a bunch of 11 and 12 year olds should not be watching. And I think you can tell that these are kids who not only are hired for this job, but they're kids that are enjoying each other. And these are kids that are getting in trouble together. Um, it feels deeper than just a uh, regular cast to me. And um, so definitely the sum is greater or the. Yeah, the sum is greater than the parts, I guess. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. They work better as an ensemble. They work together. And that's why none of them became stars is because if you wanted to pick apart individual performances and go, oh, that's not really necessarily great acting, you could probably do that. And I've seen some reviews on Letterboxd where people have done such a thing and say, you know, this, this isn't great acting and this and that. But that's not the point. The point is the whole. And together, they play off of each other darn near perfectly i think some of the what we might want to call bad acting is a natural type of acting because it's these kids and they're just kind of acting out their real lives to an extent it's one of those situations where you're playing yourself i think and so when you do that it doesn't necessarily come off as acting and then there's nothing wooden about it it's goofy it's fun they, I just love the way they play off each other. The timing in the comedy and the jokes here works for me. This is my kind of comedy, guys, which we all know is hit and miss and mostly miss. But it's because the jokes aren't all set up. Instead of the script being written in a way that intentionally is preparing us for some kind of slapstick gag, it just feels like it's really naturally flowing out of the conversation and naturally flowing out of the actions taking place to me. I guess authentic would be a word, Patrick, that we've used before that makes me think about this film in, in a way when I would, you know, compare it to others. It, it just feels like these guys are a real life young group of kids playing baseball. And I happen to be dropped down and looking in on them from above. And I love the fact that it's narrated as well, because I think that getting a little bit of extra info about the kids as that narrated exposition helps us so that the kid doesn't have to sell his personality in full. It's just a like, oh, yeah, well, of course that guy's going to say that line that way, because 
we already learned from Smalls the narrator that this is the type of character that is, and I think that that helps make the cast work as a whole better too. Yeah, when I when I watch this movie, I'm reminded a lot of The Wonder Years as a TV series and how you have you have such a great chemistry with the narrator and and the main character. And and that's a part of it. You know, that it can be hit or miss when it comes to narration. I think I mentioned uh last week about one of my one of my tropes that I don't like or just something that annoys me is when you have exposition on like newscasts and things that we're just kind of gaining that information. The voiceover can get overdone if it's not done well. But I think when you have 90 minutes and you have nine people that you, or, you know, 11, if you count, if you count Small's parents, you have very little time to invest in any or all these characters. And I think it was by design that we didn't get a singular story about all nine of these folks. We got some highlights of different folks. We got squints. We got, we got, uh, you know, of course we got Smalls, his thing. We got Benny. And I think that I didn't feel like that was uneven. I felt like that was what we had time for. And the narration helped because it, like you said, allowed us to fill in those gaps. But the comedy and the placement of that comedy helped accentuate those personalities. And so you have, yeah, yeah, in his small way, having quiet little moments where, why do you call him yeah, yeah? Oh, it's because, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 when he's, you know, trying to cut down smalls or, uh, or, uh, or squints. You just have all these little personalities that feel developed that you don't have to kind of invest for 45 minutes in each one of them to get to know who they are. They kind of set themselves up through that voiceover, but also through, there's this really fantastic scene where Benny's introducing Smalls and everybody spits as a way to kind of say, here's who we are. This is what we do. This is your kind of rite of passage. Hopefully you can spit like us. And things like that help kind of give us that idea of what kind of group this is, how long they've been together. This is not a one summer crew. We didn't need to be told that, that they've been doing this for years and years and years. We got that inference in the fact that at the very end, all those baseballs that were hidden by, by the dog or, you know, Wendy Peppercorn. So I've seen her years and years and years, you know, so we have these relationships that are set up. And I love the fact that we're just dropped into that, that slice of life that you mentioned, Aaron. It's what I think is the most appealing about this is that we don't have to know a lot, but the things that we do learn get amplified as the movie goes on. Well, one of the big moments in the movie, aside from from Benny and his PF flyers, is Squints. And I don't think I've met anyone who's seen this movie who doesn't give a cheer when Squints does his thing. Because he had kissed a woman, and he had kissed her good. And I wanted so bad in my life to be Squints as an adolescent. I wanted to be that bold kind of guy. Not necessarily with the big glasses, but whatever, I'll take it. But to be able to be that bold is probably one of the best scenes in the entire movie. It's the most memorable, that's for sure. Being that it's a praiseworthy display of guts and planning, I wonder how that would work in 2019. And I almost don't want to ask the question, but it, it gets me curious. How would this work in 2019? Would this be offensive? Would this be just like, oh, it's innocent. It's just kids. Or are we in an age right now where... No, that's wrong. I'd like to preface what I'm about to say by saying that if my son did something like that, he wouldn't need the pool to ban him from the pool for life because he would (laughs) never be going to the pool again. That being said, I can't think of any other scene in movie history that makes me smile as big as I do when Squints executes his play. Not, Not the kiss, but when he looks up and winks at his friends just before going in for the kiss, I smile so big and I don't think it would play well today. And I don't think I would fault anybody for thinking that it's terrible. But as far as for me, and I think it's uh, it's just great. It's wonderful. But well, again, my son would be grounded from the pool for life if he did it. Yeah, I, I think mine would probably be in trouble as well maybe not as much i don't know you guys i 
told you I was watching this for the kind of the first time, and I was not expecting this. And so I was texting you in real time, both of you freaking out, calling him a legend as it was going down because it was just incredible to watch. And you're right, Jeremy. It's one of the most memorable scenes of any movie. Like it is defining of this movie in so many ways. And I think for me, I really like the fact that when Smalls is narrating kind of the history of this at the end, it's a great, great little piece that he says. He says, what he'd done was sneaky, rotten, and low, and cool. I love that he leads with that. He calls it what it is first, before he gets to the part about the fact that he did it, and they enjoyed it, and they were proud of him. He calls it sneaky, rotten, and low. Then he goes into the, he got banned at the pool forever that day, but every time he walked by after that, the lifeguard looked down at him and smiled. I think that the age gap matters, is what I think. I think when you are a young boy, and a, a, you know, a 10, 9, I think it matters. When you're that age and you're looking up to the 16, 17-year-old lifeguard like we all do, this is a seemingly sweet, tender, harmless, and absolutely without intention kind of act that is that is taking place. Would I promote it? No. Would I help my son with the planning of said, <laughs> you know, act? No. But I think that there is a likelihood this would be overreacted to in 2019 in a sense when it's not really sexual harassment in the way that people want to call sexual harassment. I think that we get into a problem where we don't separate things within that bubble. And this to me is on the extreme lower end of that. And that's why it's hard not to cheer for it. And I think when we cheer for it, we do so in a way, like you said, Jeremy, where we're not actually supporting the doing of it, but we're kind of reacting to the realism of this being what young boys feel like doing and want to do. I don't know, man, I'm really torn on this whole moment because part of me can put myself in the perspective and be like, oh, that's really shady. And I, you know, how could you possibly do that and take advantage of someone? And the other part of me is like, you know, you kiss your mom and dad on the lips like this kiss all the time, you know, when you're a kid. And so let's be realistic about how bad this really was yeah when i look at this squints wasn't out to try to have sex with this woman he wanted to kiss her and he was exploring what it meant to be an adolescent to me that experience that whole scene was consistent with everything else that these guys were experiencing it was really exploring the idea of what it means to be a legend and i never in my life in any viewing of this have ever thought he's conquering something if he's conquering anything, it's a fear that he has because he's held back for so long. It could be anything. It just happened to be kissing an older woman that was something that he obsessed over. But I think that there still is innocence wrapped up in that in some way because of the fact that he wasn't out to do anything more than just that. And like you, Aaron, I'm really glad that the narrator led with the fact that that was wrong. It's not something you're going to teach your kid to do because it's morally wrong, but it captures the head and the heart and the mentality of what it means to be a kid and to just go for it. It's that same kind of mentality that dares you to jump off of a, a big cliff, you know, and hopes and hope that you don't belly flop or die or something like that. Or it's the, it's the dares that you make with your friends saying, I dare you to do this. It's a, it's a way of posturing for sure. But I think for each individual, it's a chance to ask themselves, do I have what it takes? Can I really do this? You could apply that same thing to Benny when he puts on those PF flyers. He's making a choice. He's going to either do this or he's not. He's either going to be successful or he's not. I think in some ways that's the same thing, although the the outcome and maybe even the the method itself is something that I would not endorse from my kid at all. I would not celebrate that with him, but in the back of my mind, I would understand and I would say, hey, this is what you felt like you wanted to accomplish. It was something that you've wanted for a long time and you got to kiss the girl. You're not going to go to the pool anymore. 
but I understand. And I think that there's some weird duality as a parent now, you know, not watching this as a kid to seeing how we can both celebrate the motive, but not celebrate the action. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think there's a lot of times, especially like with my oldest son, where I catch him doing something that eh, he probably shouldn't do, or I'm like, hey, don't do that again, but that was pretty cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. like, like I, I see what you're doing. You're growing. You're, you are, you know, trying to experience new things, but don't do that again. I, I find that happens quite often. And I also wanted to mention that I've been, I've been the fat kid since like third grade, so I didn't really have much of an athletic history. So my greatest athletic achievement, my greatest baseball achievement was convincing my pastor that we should name our church softball team the Fighting Peppercorns a couple of years back. So I would endorse that. That's kind of fun. I can't hear her name and not think Peppercorn. I guess that's probably the point, and I don't know why they would make that reference so close, but man, that's all I hear. <laughs> Peppercorns are hot. <laughs> so was Wendy, I guess. <laughs> oh, I wasn't making that connection, but thanks for going there, eh? Glad to do have what you on I the can show. do. Do what I have you on the show. Yeah. Just call me Squints. I just call me Squints. <laughs> I mean, what I'm the you? guy. Listen, I'm the guy that stole my mom's engagement ring when he was in third grade and proposed to a girl on the playground. Wow. I'm the guy that at my first grade birthday party chased around the girl that I was madly in love with. Her name was Wendy, believe it or not. Around the Pizza Hut center table like four or five times before finally cornering her in a booth and being able to kiss. Her. So I experienced these things, and while I, again, don't endorse them, I wouldn't do them now. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> I can't help but relate. Well, of course not. No, I would even catch catch you in a Pizza Hut at all. I mean, there's no way you'd be there. Um, wow. At the same time, I'm saying wow, but I'm also not surprised because of, you know, what I know about you, Aaron, and just that's both hilarious and true, so fantastic. But news to me. I'm glad to know those new stories. <laughs> One of the biggest moments in the movie, uh, as we're getting back to that, is when the babe shows up and talks to Benny in his dream. He tells him a quintessential line, heroes get remembered, but legends never die. And I think this is something that's, along with you're killing me, Smalls, probably one of the more prominent quotes that that I remember. And as I was watching The Sandlot this time around with my feeling film brain and my adult brain, I was thinking, what does he really mean by this? And do I actually agree with that statement? So let me put that out to you guys. Jeremy, what's your interpretation of this? Is it pretty straightforward or do you have some kind of profound thing that you can lay on us? I believe it's a hundred percent true. I think he means that you can do, you can do a great thing that people will see and people remember you forever. I think I was thinking of it in terms of the babe, versus Bobby Thompson in like the 19, I think it's the 1951 World Series. He hit the shot word, heard around the world where he, he hit a home run, the Giants win the pennant, Giants win the pennant, then the, went on to the World Series. Uh, Patrick's doing it on the video, uh, with his mute on here, but Bobby Thompson was a hero. He won the game for his team and it's something that people talk about and that people remember. The babe to me is a legend. We don't necessarily get to see the things he did because that was before they were filming a lot of stuff. You think of like his called shot, stuff like that. He was He's a legend. He's a guy that when you ask somebody who are the greatest baseball players of all time, people still bring up the babe, which is, as a baseball fan, is utterly ridiculous. The guy didn't know what a curveball was you know this the game has morphed into such that people would be all just he wouldn't be he'd, he'd be fine but he'd be a guy who would um be a home run only sort of a guy anyway john I'm crook just, yeah he's what <laughs> i said he'd be john crook he'd be john exactly <laughs> the guy is getting hot dogs during games from vendors and smoking cigars in the locker room this is not one of the greatest players of all time he wouldn't be one of the top 50 greatest players in the 2000s if he played today but it's because of all of the great things we've heard of him we've heard of the called shot but all we have is grainy photos and we don't know is he really pointing out there or not and so in my opinion babe ruth will be remembered he will 
he, in that sense, he will never die. He will always be talked about as one of the greatest of all time because what he did was more than just a singular heroic act. He did something legendary that people are going to talk about from from now on. I think that this line for me is a bit more of a great piece of screenwriting than it is something of depth. To be honest, I think that it, it kind of contradicts itself a little bit in a way. You know, heroes getting remembered is the same thing as legends never dying. If you're getting remembered and you're implying that you never get forgotten, that's the same thing as never dying, in my opinion. So I think that they have a very similar wording to them here. I, I do think that there is a difference in what you were bringing it up, Jeremy, as heroic acts tend to be maybe one time legendary tends to be meant as more of a lifetime kind of thing, which is interesting. You know, Squince's act, you know, we would use the term legendary, but it's not necessarily that either. Heroic acts, maybe it is. Maybe the difference is that heroic acts are uh, not necessarily career achievements either. You know, like winning a game is is a heroic act um, versus legendary. I don't know how you would feel about that. I don't know how you would separate these words. For me... They get very mixed together. I personally get attached more to what Babe says before that. And that line is like just kind of a fun little zinger at the end. He tells Benny, he says, let me tell you something, kid. Everybody gets one chance to do something great. Most people never take the chance, either because they're too scared or they don't recognize it when it spits on their shoes. That's the line that I think is the awesome thematic one here in this section of the film because what i learned is this film is just about as benny as much as it is about smalls and i wasn't expecting that i thought with smalls narrating it was going to be all about him but i felt like benny is such a phenomenal character in this movie and what babe is telling him here this this idea of you can't be too scared to take your shot i, I love that and i love that he calls out most people don't recognize it that the moment is there to be seized. They just kind of let it go by without ever acting on it. And legends recognize that and go for it, right? They have the guts to do so. And so I really like that part of it. But yeah, man, I for me, I guess I just don't see heroes and legends as necessarily something as different as Jeremy does. Well, I'm, I'm going to side with Jeremy on this one because I think that when it comes to a legend, that can be positive or negative hero typically has a positive spin on it but jimmy the way you were describing the babe his legendary status was equally tied to all the shenanigans and everything else that made him who he was apart from the called shot i mean the called shot was one moment there's a movie called 61 that billy crystal directed about the maris mantle home run race which is probably one of my favorite baseball movies about two people that or on a team that I could care less about, but I have two, I have two figurines sitting in my office of these guys because I love the characters so much. I love the actors, characters, the players so much because the story itself really centers around the home run race, but because of the shadow that Babe Ruth left. And one of the big, big plot lines and through lines is this is this fact that they're playing in his house. That's what they quote. That's saying Yankee Stadium, that's his house, the house that Ruth built. And this home run race, there is all this stuff surrounding both of these players. And there's a faction of people that don't want them to break this record. Why? Because Babe Ruth said it. And if his record gets broken, then, uh-oh, what's going to happen? Because he has set this tone. He changed baseball with his presence, not only on the field, but off the field. And Aaron, I think that's what we're getting at is that we see heroic acts done throughout this movie, but Squince's act was not heroic. It's legendary because it's remembered. And he goes down in history as to his friends, this is what a legend looks like. And I, I look at that and I think, okay, a legend doesn't necessarily have to be defined by a good thing or a positive thing or something that's going to benefit somebody else. It's going to be something that gets remembered. And that remembrance in a sense, keeps that legend from dying. Whereas a hero is just talked about in the moment. Oh, he did this one thing or she did that one thing. I, I don't, I, I don't think heroically 
that has the weight that being a legend does. Yeah, I think you sold me when, right off the bat, actually, when you said and differentiated between them as heroic being a positive thing of success that is thought of in a, in a positive light versus legendary being memorable, but not necessarily having that same positive winningness to it always. So I, I think that was a perfect distinction to get me to see how they can be different. And to me, I think I see legends as something that grow. It it starts as one thing and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as more people tell the story as opposed to a heroic act. I think of a great documentary. It's a 30 for 30 about Bo Jackson called You Don't Know Bo. And I am biased. I was a dues paying member of the Bo Club when I was eight years old. So I do love that documentary. But so we have all these heroic acts or cool things that Bo did. You know, he ran up the wall and made that catch. He hit a mammoth home run in the first at bat in his all-star game. He did some amazing things. And that's not even to mention what he did on Tecmo Bowl. But, you know, when when they go back and they talk to all these kids that grew up in his hometown, you know, they're telling stories about him jumping from here to, you know, from this wall to this wall in a way that nobody, no human being could possibly actually do. But it grows over the years and gets bigger and bigger. And so while we have these little pieces of Bo, there's also this sort of legend that follows him around. I think Babe Ruth is the same way we've already mentioned. So to me, I see uh, heroic acts as you, you don't become a legend without some sort of act, whether it's heroic or what squints did but uh to me what makes a legend is that growing 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 and you know um benny didn't really run through the entire town and knock over that cake and you know go through the movie theater with the beast that's all something that grew from people telling the story over and over and over again so that to me that's the biggest distinction is how legends grow and uh heroes are just someone who created did this act yeah and i think yeah and i think that Taylor's back to what you were saying, Aaron, about that line before this line where Benny took that shot. Had he not taken that shot, he wouldn't have even had an opportunity to become a legend. And sometimes I think that legends themselves aren't being asked to become that. Like They don't think, I'm going to become a legend, so I'm going to do these things. That legend gets attached to them because the story grows, because it becomes mythical at, at some point, And you're almost inclined to just say, believe what you want to believe. But you're almost embracing that with a sense of satisfaction because you're like, there's some nugget of truth embedded in all that. And if it's there, then it's it's enough for me to say, yep, Benny's a legend in that regard. Well, one of the subplots that is taking place in this, there's a, there's a handful of them, but there's this relationship that, that Smalls has with his stepdad, Bill, dad, Bill, dad, you know. And early on, we get this sense of, it's awkward. Um, I don't know if we're told specifically how long his stepdad and his mom have been married. I don't think it's been too long, maybe a year. But you couple that with the fact that they've now moved to a new place. And there's a there's a fantastic moment where where Smalls is playing with his erector set and just nails his mom in the head with one of those like uh, metal balls. And early on, we we get this kind of awkward relationship that he's definitely a mama's boy, but she wants him to cultivate this relationship with this new father figure. And so early on, he says, um, dad, I mean, uh, Bill, remember how you said you were going to teach me how to play catch? Yeah, I'll do it. Okay, great. And just this awkward thing. I'm wondering by the end of the movie, obviously there's resolution there. He's playing catch with his dad. He's calling him dad. And, what do you think about that relationship early on created that discomfort? Um, was it just the fact that it was new? Was it because it was intimidating? What did you guys glean from that? Because there wasn't a lot of backstory with regards to it. I've been blessed enough in my life that I I don't have a stepdad. My parents are still married for like a hundred years from by now, um, so I can't speak to that specifically uh, and like the issues that might be going on there with Smalls, but. From my own experience as a dad, I see in my kids like a longing to impress me or a longing to have something in common with me 
my for two of my kids it comes really easy they're super into baseball so we watch royals games together even when they're terrible we talk about royals when they have day games the kids tell me the score when i get home we have that connection but i also my oldest son is artistic and he's into all the stuff that i don't understand and i don't get and i see him like trying to get into the baseball because he knows it's something that dad likes and just trying to find that connecting point with me and i feel like that's where smalls is at the beginning of the movie is there's this new guy living in his house and he doesn't connect with him and he really wants to and so i feel like his interest in baseball is driven by wanting to connect to connect with his stepfather and when he's able to finally get into baseball it takes him a while i feel like he finds that connecting point i think you need that connecting point with a person to grow into a deeper relationship otherwise it's just going to be like you're living with a stranger yeah it's an interesting relationship because his dad died and i think that that changes things a lot because when his dad is still alive or if his dad was still alive and he's just moving with his mom and a new husband, it's a much, much different relationship because he still has a dad to fill that gap and that role, even if he's not living with them full time, if it's a custody situation. So I think that that's a very important piece of the characters and how they're written for him. He is missing it completely now. Like he doesn't have it. I actually think that Bill serves a purpose to show us how a child's friends can fill that role, whether they should or shouldn't, because Benny almost does that for him in so many ways. Um, he does things that, that Smalls would maybe ideally have his dad be showing him or giving him you know, history about, things like that. I think that Bill is portrayed really well here. I like him because he's not the jerk. Again, not overdramatic here. He's a good guy who married the mom. He's not the goofus like in Bumblebee where the new dad is, you know, has a good heart, but is played up to be this really dorky kind of out of place character. Bill seems like a really great stepdad, right? He just, they just haven't connected yet. They haven't become best friends. And that's a relationship that is very difficult to navigate. It just is. This person is coming into your life. You're already established in your personality, and now you've got to accept them whether you like it or not. You don't have a choice in the matter. This is not like, I can choose to be friends with Patrick or Jeremy, and I can, if I don't like you guys, I can find friends that I connect with better. You can't really do that with your stepdad. You know what I mean? You're stuck with the one you got. And I think that it does inform some of Smalls' interest in baseball because it's something that Bill can connect with him you know, one of my almost connecting points, one of the things that I really liked about the movie was that scene where Bill was leaving to go to work and he shakes his hand before he leaves on a work trip and he says, you know, I'm expecting you to take care of things, be the man of the house, and when I get back, we're going to play catch. I just, I just thought it was innocent, pure, like really sweet. It was an encouraging moment by him. Um, you could sense a little bit of the awkwardness still in their relationship by that shaking of hands. They're not really at the hug scenario yet. They're not super close, but he's making an effort. And I just think that it, you know, it, it's exciting to me to wonder how their relationship could develop going forward. I think that they are set on such a great path because of the events of this summer that it will only help to make their relationship grow closer as the years go on. Yeah, I was halfway sold on Bill this time around. And I think what you've said, Aaron, has kind of gotten me kind of supporting him once again in the fact that Dennis Leary is an interesting choice for Bill because he's very abrasive. I mean, there's that's just who he is. And I've seen him as a father figure uh, a couple other times. The Amazing Spider-Man, he's really great in that. But I look at I look at his relationship with Scotty and I see that mutual need for each other, that need to connect because I'd like to believe that he wants to be a father figure, that he's not a drunk. He's not beating up on, on Scotty's mom. Like he really does care about her. And you got to believe that he understands this is what you're getting when you, when you marry, marry him, (laughs) you know, you're, you're, you're getting this awkward kid who plays with his erector set 
and doesn't get out apparently. And so for him, I know it's a challenge. So having those moments where that first catch is beautifully hilarious because he misses the ball. So realistic. It absolutely is. And you think as a dad growing up who played ball, who played baseball, I understand that. But you kind of sense his tension. You kind of sense the frustration because he's like, it's easy. Just hold your glove up and catch it. And I'm, I've, I've thought that way too. I'm like, why is it that way? You know, why is it, why doesn't it come easy for you? Because not everybody plays ball. Not everybody's ever grown up playing baseball or even having a catch. And so I think that scene in particular helped set up, I think, both of them wanting to have a common ground relationship. And I love the fact that baseball did that because it's a very, I mean, that's, that's a trope in and of itself. Let's play catch with dad and that'll make all things better. But I think in this way, it wasn't cheap. I'm glad that there wasn't a lot of screen time between the two because the movie wasn't about their relationship. It was part of it. But I agree with you, Jim, or with you, Aaron and Jeremy, you know, why not? But I agree with you, Aaron, that Benny was a father figure to him to an extent, maybe an older brother more than anything else, but giving him that shot, that, that scene, um, I guess a couple of scenes later where he says, just hold your glove up like that and I'll do the rest. I mean, dude, how much, how much, how big a cojones do you need to have? To be able to do something like that, I couldn't do that. I'm like, you got to be some kind of man to be able to hit a ball. Well, he's got skill. I don't think I it's don't. just cojones. He's got skill. Right. He's good. Right. And so I think that that in and of itself helps set something up as kind of a brother-father figure that led to what we got at the end, which is this really nice resolution between Smalls and his dad. Well, one quick thing, kind of a fun question I want to ask you guys before we move into our connecting points we have a slew of characters. We have nine, at least. And I wanted to ask, either growing up as a kid or maybe even thinking about it now, which one of these characters do you guys gravitate towards? If you had to pick one that would say, Aaron is a blah, or Jeremy is a blah. <laughs> do you do, do any of them stand out? Or are you like, I would love to be a Benny, but unfortunately I am something else instead well jeremy is definitely a smalls at the beginning hiding behind the fence and watching all the other kids kind of being too shy to go out and to want to to join in that is completely me at the beginning now once you get to know me there's two jeremy's once you get to know me i turn into ham and i'm the goofy loud guy making the jokes all the time but at the beginning, when I'm going into a room with people I don't know, I'm 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 small, standing behind the fence, hoping that nobody sees me. Well, what were you growing up like in the in the age group of these kids? What which would, would you have been? Absolutely the same. Just terrified of meeting okay. new people until I get with the people that I already know, and then I'm me. Well, I think I'm probably in some ways squints. I mean, I grew up fat and I had glasses and I wasn't super attractive and I went through you know trying to I was very much into girls but girls were not very much into me and so I feel like that whole plot line as I expressed earlier was incredibly relatable and the fact that he's also good at baseball and he's totally comfortable with his group of friends out there playing baseball and he doesn't feel awkward or out of place amongst his group, his close friends. That is very much me as well, um, because I was like that. Once you know, once I had my crew, I was fine. Like I wasn't, a ner- I wasn't shy to the point of I wouldn't do things. I would definitely have done something like this act that he pulls off with Wendy. But I also might have been, from the outside, looked at and considered to be a very dorky nerd. But my group would have accepted me and loved me and saw that I was uh, a great piece of the entire puzzle there um, at the Sandlot. So I think for me, it's definitely Squints. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm Benny early on, and I think I grew into a a ham as I discovered sarcasm and how to how to make a joke in a room. I clearly remember being like, I think 10 years old at a family friend's house and sitting around the lunch table, getting ready to eat. And they were like, 
what would you like to drink? And I said, what do you have? And they said, we've got water, we've got lemonade. And I remember specifically saying, hmm, that water sounds like a winner and getting a laugh from the people around me. And I remember that being the moment where I was like, wow, I can make jokes. I can be funny. And I admit the hit and miss life since then. But I feel like I was Benny up to that point, And then I turned into ham where I could be loud and obnoxious and hopefully provide a little levity in the room. I feel like I still have that today where I can provide that kind of humor in a room that's kind of tense. But, uh, but yeah, definitely a kind of a combination of both of those, depending on the season of life that I was in. Well, there's a television series, I think, in the works. I think there was some news about that a few months ago, and I wanted to get you guys quick thoughts on what do you think about that? I think it's a continuation of these main characters, like where they are now, having kids on their own. What do you make of uh, that TV series? Is it something you'd be interested in watching? You think it's done? Don't do that. Don't mess up my childhood. What do you think? At this point, I'm completely uninterested. I have all the story that I need from those people. Now, if somebody whose opinion I trust on TV were to tell me, hey, you should watch this, it's really good, I I might give it a shot. You know, there, I thought the same thing when I heard Karate Kid was going to be made into a, some TV series, and everything I hear about Cobra Kai is that it's wonderful. So my mind can be changed, but I really just have no interest in it at all. I, I have my Sandlot. I'm with you 100%, Jeremy. I'm in the same boat. I don't have the attachment, you know, longevity wise to this that you do as far as rewatching it all of these decades, but I plan to have this as a annual rewatch now for myself and I do really, really love it. And I couldn't imagine the stories of these kids being told in a way that is consistent with the Sandlot in 2019 or 2020. I just don't think it would happen. Um, it would be completely different tone. And I, like you, I will say I can be changed or my mind can be changed. The Cobra Kai is a great example of that where something did work, but I would imagine a lot of scenarios where this could go really wrong versus a small amount of scenarios where it could go really right. And I don't have any interest in it. I think that the beauty of this story, and we talk about this all the time, just when we're doing these franchise movies and stuff, we've got to stay in a place where movies are allowed to exist as independent tales. Everything doesn't need expanded upon. It's okay to tell us an amazing story about some characters that lasted one stupid summer and leave it at that. I like the fact that my imagination gets to tell me what happened to these characters and not a screenwriter 30 years later trying to capitalize on the popularity of that and telling me what happened to them. And I just personally don't, don't have a lot of interest in it. Yeah, I don't either, but it makes sense that you're going to expand on a universe that doesn't need to, as the show, along with, I think, Dear Simon, is going to be on Disney+. Plus. So, you know, if you got a movie, smoke if you got them. If you want to make it an expanded universe, just throw it on Disney+, Plus and they'll, they'll abide by that. So I, I don't think – I'm with you guys. I don't think it needs any more storytelling. I feel like it is capitalizing on nostalgia. It's capitalizing on – what once was and not what should be. And I think that shows like Cobra Kai are an exception to the rule. A great exception to the rule. Everybody should be watching it. There's my plug. All right. <laughs> well, moving on to our connecting points, uh, I think that we were all pretty synonymous in terms of what we liked. And uh, Jeremy, I'm going to go ahead and let you kick it off with our collective connecting point. Yeah, my connecting point is... After, I believe it's the second day that Smalls goes to the Sandlot and Benny walks him home and hands him his glove and tells him to burn his hat and gives him a new hat. Now, what are the logistics of that? Has Benny had an extra glove in his back pocket all day? Has he had an extra hat in his back pocket all day? Those are some really big back pockets, but I don't care because I need that sort of invitation into a group. Like I said, I am Smalls. I am 
going to shrink back and I need to get that sort of an acceptance from somebody in order to join a group, in order to feel accepted. And so when that happens for Smalls, it just really, really hits me in the feels. I think it's special. It's kind of like, hey, you're one of us now. This is fun. This is fine. Let's We're, we're going to have a lot of fun together. And that's what I need. And I think it's wonderful. Yeah, man, I, I absolutely love this scene. Um, it was a very close winner over the Windy Peppercorn moment for me. Uh, the legendary squints. And this is really the culmination, I think, of how we see Benny's character defined over the opening course of the movie. And what I was telling you guys earlier about how I think that this is as much Benny's story as it is Smalls. He stands up for Smalls when the rest of the boys make fun of him. He believes in Small's ability to learn to play, teaches him how to catch the ball. Patrick, you mentioned that amazingly awesome scene. And then he finally gives him clothes advice and also this new hat and a glove. Wow. I mean, this is almost an unheard of amount of taking someone under your wing when you're the popular kid. In this day and age, the popular kid is almost always portrayed as more of a bully and I love that we portrayed a popular kid as someone who wanted to use that popularity and pay it forward and encourage others to be a part of the group. He's is essentially exhibiting a lot of the traits that I think you would expect to come from a boy's father. And he's the coolest kid with the most influence in the entire neighborhood. But he never treats Smalls as lesser. And giving him the glove and the hat specifically, I think, symbolized this full acceptance of him in their group. And for Smalls, it lets him feel like he's found a new home. Like, he, he's now comfortable being where he is. It's the sweetest, purest act in this movie. And it's one that, sadly, we just don't see any expectation for in the real world anymore, I don't think. Um, we should, or we should celebrate when it happens and tell those stories. I also really love that he tells Smalls to throw away his awful long-billed hat into the fire because that thing was so ugly, and I was thinking the same thing the whole time I was watching it, and I felt like the screenwriters really paid off me being repulsed by that hat with Benny telling him, you know, get rid of that piece of junk, it's ugly. However, he didn't get rid of it because if you see in the last scene as an adult, he's wearing that hat. So, just saying. Yeah, well, it fits him when he's an adult. I know, but I'm saying... Because his head is larger. I, I get that. I'm just saying that it's a centerpiece for him, too. <laughs> is that what the series is going to focus on? Is it going to be all about the hat, the hat? The journey of the, the hat. hat. And, and, the, and the gross ball. Uh, it's going to be that. That was disgusting. <laughs> I don't even think we talked about the beast. Well, the beast is symbolic. You yeah. Know, whatever. And really cute. Go he ahead. Yes. Yes. Well, I definitely agree. With, with everything that you guys have been saying, I think that the moment for me in that scene that stands out is the way in which Smalls delivers the line, thanks, Benny. There's a little crack in his voice and how he turns around and he goes in the house and right as he's going, he says, hey, mom, guess what? I've done that before where I've gotten so excited about something where I felt like, wow, I just had a moment of being proud. Like, Something just happened here that I can't explain. And I want to tell my mom about it or my parents. My my son does this quite a bit. He says, Dad, check this out. And I'm like, what? What is it? And it's something just completely benign. But to him, it's something amazing. He's drawn, you know, a circle or he's he's cut out something that he's been working on for a while. And I have to be very conscious of how I respond to that because that's going to mean something to him. And to not be overblown and try to just blow it up for unknown, you know, for whatever reason, but to be genuinely excited about the fact that he's excited about it. And I think what Benny does, it's interesting to see that we don't ever see Benny's home life. We don't know if he has a dad. We don't know if he's living with his mom or an aunt or, or whoever. What we know is that Benny understands how to take care of people. And Benny also understands that he always needs to improve. There's a fantastic line where as a way to bring Smalls in, he says, now I get to rotate eight positions instead of seven. And he says, I need to practice, guys. And it's like, no, you're the best in the team, Benny. In any other case, you would think that he's trying to just receive some kind of flattery, like he's just fishing for compliments. But 
I believe because of that scene with Smalls that he genuinely wants to have a team that gets better. He wants to be a part of the team. He doesn't want to just be the one guy. He wants to lead the team, and I feel like he can lead the team. And he sees Smalls not as gaps to be filled in, but as something important as a teammate, but also as a friend of this group that is complete as a result of you know their friendship. So it's a it's a powerful moment. It's got a great balance of comedy and drama and all that great stuff. So I uh, I love it. It's a great scene. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of Feeling Film. Jeremy, before we head off, do you want to let people know where they can find you on social media so they can continue the conversation if they want to? Absolutely. You can find me on Facebook, roaming around the Feel and Film discussion group. I'm pretty active in there. And on Twitter, I'm at Jay in Lincoln. But I always like to warn people, it's mostly uh, Husker stuff and Royal stuff. So not a lot of movies, but if you want to hear my thoughts on the uh, upcoming Huskers football season or how crappy the Royals are, <laughs> let me tell you, at Jay and Lincoln is the place to be. <laughs> you also have a nice little trolling of our our, uh, our president as well, I think. Yeah, I try not to do that so much anymore. Okay. You know, in case I want to be elected someday, I don't want to be known as, you know, I don't want people to go back and find my old tweets. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, if history has proven anything. <laughs> well, coming up this week, we have a fresh FF Plus coming your way where we talk spoiler-free about a couple of new movies and one that, well, is new to me, as well as our recent adventure into the gaming world. So you'll want to tune in for that. And for the rest of June, we are getting into the summer spirit covering The Way, Way Back with Aaron Hunley, as well as Dazed and Confused. And sandwiched in between there is an episode from our Premium Pick Library, a new contribution. Brought to us by Renee Spencer, who is requesting coverage of Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing. So you'll want to stay close to your podcast catchers for all of that good stuff. Aaron, Jeremy, thank you guys for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.